0: Welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafter, and today I'll be chatting with Elizabeth Rossiello, CEO and founder of Azure Finance. Azure Finance is an established provider of currency trading solutions, which accelerate global access to frontier markets through an innovative infrastructure.
1: Hello, Elizabeth. How are you? Great. Hi, Stacy. How's it going? Well, a little chilly here in London, still adjusting to living above the equator, but (laughs) I'm buying some sweaters. It's okay.
0: Nice. You mentioned that you weren't planning on staying in London for that long, but then
1: lockdown kind of had other plans in mind. Exactly. I think everybody around the world has had a bit of a life shift during these last few years. So ours has been a bit of a colder life shift, but we're getting used to it. Are you enjoying it so far? I mean, I'm enjoying London opening up now and I can finally experience the city and there's so much happening in the tech scene here and, you know, finally getting to experience a bit of that. But yeah, it's going to be a different fall than it was last year for sure.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Well, Elizabeth, I'm excited and eager to dive right in. Before we get any further, I would love to just hear your story and essentially what led you
1: to build as a finance. Sure. Well, I have a, a bit of a unique story, and that I'm an American who went to work in Europe and then ended up founding a company in East Africa. But I think it's a story of someone who was nomadic from the beginning. And, you know, when you're a bit of an outsider, and I always studied languages and I always studied abroad, it develops a certain skill set of being able to really. Understand locally what's happening, but also have a bit of an outsider's perspective. So, when I was in Europe at the start of the financial crisis, I was working in investment banking, and although my team was doing really well and we were having high margins in the downturn, a lot of my friends from school were out of jobs, and the banks that they were working for were collapsing. And so, you know, um, it really it really made us second guess: is this the right structure for the financial system? So. I ended up applying for a job in East Asia because I wanted out of Europe, I wanted out of traditional investment banking, and the job I applied for gave me a position in East Africa. So, you know, sight unseen, I had never really thought about moving to sub-Saharan Africa. I went down to Nairobi in '09, and what I saw was the start of a huge boom going on in the financial system there. Yeah. So, it was super interesting that, you know, up in Europe and the US and Asia, everything was crumbling, and when we flew down to Nairobi, it was just the start of this tremendous, incredible period of growth. And I was very lucky and privileged to be, to be there at the start of that. And mobile money had just begun two years before. And when I say begun, I mean shot through the, through the atmosphere into outer space in terms of success. So Vodafone, Safaricom, um, and yeah. PESA product really just kind of taken off. And so there were a lot of young tech companies building on to that and saying, well, if mobile money is working so well, and these analog SIM-based telephone wallets are such a success, how can we take that one step further? So there were companies building on you know, account management for that, uh, business services added on to that, extra features, connecting with banks... And so I was sitting through that period and I was working in microfinance and I was writing a lot about how those microfinance institutions were absorbing this technology. And the ones that were using mobile money were doing a lot better than the ones that weren't. And by a lot better, Mm. I mean, we saw operating expense ratios go from over 120% down to 10% just because a banking institution decided to move their platform over to mobile money. I mean, it was just so much more efficient than the systems they had before. And I'm not just talking about East Africa. I traveled all over the continent, Ghana, Nigeria, Malawi, South Africa. And it was just very exciting to see that this technology was available, but interesting to see that the absorption of it was not uniform. And I think that's very Mm -hmm. similar to FinTech today when we see all this cool technology available, and then we still see certain banks, even in Europe or in Asia, just unwilling to absorb it or unable to absorb it. So it really kind of separates the, the the early adopters from the slow adopter. And that was very telling. So when I started my company five years later in 2013, the idea was to, again, build on top of mobile money and take it even further than what we'd seen before. So we'd seen a lot of retail products, but I was still very interested in that B2B enterprise product. And learning from what I what I had done in investment banking, in prime brokerage, and on the trading floor, I thought, How about connecting different parts of the financial system together and then paying out or using mobile money where possible? So for me, it was really about how do I do that connectivity across border, across customer segments, and really be that broker in the middle? Because I had seen that that's what makes money in a down market. That's what survives volatility. So when we launched the company, and originally we were calling it BitPesa, the idea was to take the mobile money that was available in Kenya and translate that into a payment in Canada or a payment Mm -hmm. in local currency in Nigeria or up in Asia. And so all the beautiful efficiency of the last mile in Kenya, how do we then use that and then connect that to a bank payout in Canada? And originally we were using the Bitcoin blockchain as the rails to do that. So I would accept M-Pesa in Kenya, convert it into Bitcoin, send it to a broker in Canada and pay out into a Canadian bank account all within, you know, an hour or so, which would have taken weeks otherwise. And that was really the nexus of the idea. And we built from there. And now we do huge enterprise transactions. You know, our average size is about a million dollars, not a thousand dollars. And we work with businesses and corporates, African, global, all across the continent, all across the world. And It really was from that nexus point of how do we connect using technology, making sure we absorb the latest technology, but really learning what the local needs are and translating that to a global level.
0: That's incredible. There are so many fintechs that want to incorporate crypto and blockchain into their business, but many have pushback from their board. Why do you think this is?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, I've had pushback everywhere. I would say, you know, every single (laughs) year. That the company's been alive, there have been dozens of people telling me just leave that to the side or sell that side of the business yeah, or yeah. you know don't invest there. That's too crazy. That's too bonkers. And I think for f- several reasons, I never did that. Um, one is because it's cool. The technology is cool, and I don't mean <laughs> I don't mean it from just like a hey, it's fun. I mean it really works and it's so fast yeah. and it's so quick. And for someone like me that lives between continents and has accounts everywhere it gives you choice. It's like holding it in the middle and deciding where you want to put it. And it's just so much easier. It's like moving to a Revolut account after using, you know, the world's slowest Barclays physical brick and mortar account. You're like, wow, what are these features? (laughs) Um, So, so that's number one. Number two is that there have been really great cycles and there's a lot of bull runs and, you know, excitement around that where there's a lot of activity and trading activity. And if you trade currencies like we do, you know when a currency pair becomes popular and there's a lot of trading activity and there's a lot of liquidity there, you want to be a part of that. So yeah. you know if we just cut it out, we would have missed all those really cool, fun periods where there's a, a high level of tra- trading activity, et cetera. So yes, there's been some down valleys and some doldrums <laughs> along the way yeah. where it's very unpopular and nobody was trading it. but you know, it doesn't take much to keep it alive. And then the third thing is, is that it's very important, I think, for any kind of technology company or innovative company to not just stop innovating after your initial product and say, okay, well, we we were the last technology there is. No, you know, the whole idea of innovation is that it's perpetual. So you have to keep challenging yourself. And the thing I like most about the um, digital currency and blockchain community is that there's constant innovation. And some of it's wacky, and some of it's wild, but a lot of it's very Telling and interesting and ahead of ahead of its time, and so keeping that connection to the community has been amazing for us Why do you think there is this pushback from boards? Two reasons I think, and I you know I compare this a lot to when I started investment banking and I was on the sales and trading floor, and algorithmic trading was coming in, and digital settlement was coming in, and prior to that, you had a bunch of white guys who were professional athletes or you know like really yeah. great college athletes sitting on the trading floor with their polo shirts and these were the sales traders <laughs> and like everybody can envision it and these are the guys that talked on the phone and executed trades and you know told you what was going to happen and then like things moved over to, to digital trading and all those guys lost their job and that's not what you see anymore on a trading floor and it was this huge monumental shift and you know Lots of people came out of work and a whole different mindset came into recruitment. Who? What kind of person are you hiring for these trading jobs? Um, how many people do you need? What, where do you make money? What, how to invest in technology? Yeah. And there wasn't this kind of pushback. But like with the blockchain technology, the same kind of monumental shift is coming in. Different types of people are going to make money, different types of investment in technology. Mm-hmm. People are angry about it. Like, <laughs> you know, I've never seen such anger like... On stage, I'll be on like a panel and some guy is like spitting mad. He's literally spitting (laughs) mad. And I'm like, we're just talking about a technology, you know, like why are yeah literally spitting mad and you know, how dare you? And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the fact that people with, you know, dorky outfits and like avatars online have made more money than them and that aggravates them <laughs> you know like they feel like they've missed out on some trade and people who don't deserve to make that money made money on those trades i think that's part of it to be honest number 2 mm-hmm. i think the perpetual speed of innovation in the sector annoys them because they don't have time or interest at their stage in career to keep reading and keep learning And, you know, I guess it's like some, they didn't join biochemistry industry for a reason, you know, they don't want to keep innovating and learning. And so they're frustrated at that. And then number three, I think it takes power and, you know, incumbency out of the hands of those who have had it for a while. So all three things together make people very resistant to change and very angry about um, the industry.
0: So interesting. Thanks for that. As the finance has been growing and you guys have been doing so much over the years, you've acquired multiple businesses. How do you know that's the right time and that's the right
1: move? Well, that's a great question because we spent a lot of time thinking about this and we've had some perfectly executed deals and we've had some deals we abandoned midway and we've learned so many lessons. And I think for us, in a continent where there are not that many markets that are mega markets, so you have to have a multi-market strategy, or at least we do, um, you're going to be constantly developing in new markets. And how do you get into those markets? Do you build? Do you yeah. rent or do you buy? And so that's the question we ask our team: build, rent, buy. And we go, we have some criteria which we've learned along the way. I mean, eight years now. How long will it take us to build? What are the blockers? What is the likelihood of success? Um, Would we have full information or would we be taking a risk? How would we mitigate that risk? If we were to rent, is there a reliable rental partner? Is that partner able to scale or would we only be able to use them to a certain level? And then if we were to buy, who's on the market? What do they look like? What are Mm -hmm. they offering? And so we're thinking about these things all the time. And we do a lot of partnership, across the continent. So we get to learn about these guys and we we learn with them, you know, we rent from them, we build next to them, we talk to them, and when it comes time to buy, we already know a lot about the market. So we're in a unique position where we're ourselves a customer. And so we can kind of do some deep due diligence about what we're looking for in a potential acquisition target, and I think our team has become very good at this. And you know, we're very proud that we're a young growth company, but at the same time, we've done two successful acquisitions and they're not like little acquisitions of a dying company. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's just like a press release. These are thriving companies that have brought huge accretive profit directly to our P&L. And the most recent one, we have 50 employees joined us and, you know, really made a huge boost huge. to our P&L. So, you know, that's a big deal. And so we're very excited. And proud that we we figured out the success to do this and we're 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 on a roll and we have very, very aggressive plans to go further.
0: For other fintechs not sure if this is the right time, is there anything they should look out for where you can be like, that's a telling
1: that this is the right time to start looking at acquiring? I think for sure, if you have big ambition, you have to think about it because um, things move fast in this industry and everybody's building everywhere. What what someone told me very early on was focus, focus, focus. And you hear that a lot. And what does it mean? It sounds so generic. But you know, when you're looking at an acquisition target, I think often we would see ones that have like 60% of what we want and 40% of things that are kind of off pissed or like, you know, too much mm-hmm. to the side. Like this one company we looked at early on, we had the right price for them, but they had this project they just didn't want to let go of and management was obsessed mm-hmm. with it. And a third of the team was focused on it. And we were like, we'll buy you, but you're going to have to drop this project. And we realized that management wouldn't do it and the team would have been demotivated. So, you know, that's not going to work. You don't want to take too much yeah. of a compromise because it's already a big deal to acquire a company and, you know, culturally incorporate a team. And then to have to, you know, force them to do something they're not interested in doing. It's not a match. Another time, you know, yeah. the founder is not ready to sell and, You know that they're going to be resistant and that's not a good thing. But I think when you find the right partner, it's like a founder that's ready to fold into the company that has done what they wanted in that arc of their career. And then they're looking to do something else or, you know, work with you. We've had both one where the founder then became part of our company for five years. And another one where the founder is kind of moving on to something new with a great transition handover. Mm. And I think, you know, you need to be at that right stage. So it's like dating, you know, you need to, you need to have a lot of (laughs) dates. I love that. You need to have a lot of dates and you need to see what you're looking for and, you know, don't rush into it.
0: Money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. When acquiring, you specifically look at pieces of the business and see if it fits within this formula you've created. Can you talk about this formula?
1: Yeah. I mean, we have plans for what we want to do. If we see it available on the market and it's a very close overlap, And that's where I mean about focus. If you're saying, I want to apply for this license to enter the market and you see somebody that has that license, that's a direct overlap. If you want to get a license in a market and you see somebody with a license that's not exactly your license, and you think, well, maybe I'll change my plan because that's what they have. That's where it starts to get a little bit, you know, already you're making a compromise. If you've already decided this is the license for you, it fits your business model, it fits your strategy then, you know, if the step one is that that company or that acquisition target doesn't have that exact thing, maybe that's not what you're looking for, you know? So that's number one, we look for licensing. Second thing we look for is um, what does the team look like if we're going to be absorbing a team? And I think that's the best way to do it because the team usually has reporting capability, local knowledge Mm -hmm. of that license. You know, you can't just buy a license and let it go. Usually you have to have a team on the ground that helps service that. And, you know, what do they look like? Are they excited about this? Could you fold them into your culture? Is there something you can add to retain them? Um, That's really important to make sure because I think a lot of deals go through and then the companies don't truly integrate because nobody's prepared to fold the team in or they end up running two parallel systems. So it's very important to see whether the team could be compatible and whether you have capacity to work on absorbing them. And then number three, you know, the icing on the cake is if they already have a lot of, revenue or they have a customer that you're looking for. And if that's a customer that you would have wanted to attain anyway, again, if it's a customer doing something totally different, and then when you acquire this company, you're going to have to get off your strategic path to service that customer, then that starts to look like mission drift. So be careful about that. But those are the three things we look for.
0: Super helpful. In what other ways has, as a finance, grown across Africa this year?
1: So after the nigerian situation which was a change in policy that made it a little mm-hmm. bit difficult to keep trading with the same rules and and structure a lot of the payment companies that were focused heavily on nigeria had to kind of have a come to jesus moment of like <laughs> what are we doing here are we going to close our eyes and wait it out are we going to change our strategy or are we going to diversify markets and that's what we did. So we were over 90% concentrated in Nigeria at the end of last wow. year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, scary moment to be in. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when you dance, when you I don't want to say dance with the devil because Nigeria is not the devil, but we were, we knew it was a high risk market and you were, you were okay. making a ton of money there and it was almost like high risk, high reward. So it was worth it for us. But what we did do, which was different than maybe some other companies is we did plant a lot of seeds already from 2015. So we had subsidiaries, licenses, structure, even offices in four, five, six countries kind of ready to turn the lights on. We were just spending a lot of our engineering and our sales budget on Nigeria because it was pumping. So when the Nigeria situation changed, it didn't take a lot for us to... Change our budgetary focus and put our engineers and our sales team on those other preceded markets and turn them on. So we had the bones down and we just needed to turn the lights on. And so, very quickly, I'd say eight months, we moved our business focus to those other markets. And now we've grown beyond where we were last year. And just 15% of the market is in Nigeria. So we had a huge growth and also complete diversification and we're very proud that we were able to turn the boat in this way in such a smooth fashion and it took a lot of time it took a lot of attention from management a lot of coordination a lot of motivation and a lot of hard teamwork but we did it and it was just a really awesome execution year where we feel very proud of what we were able to do and now we're very strong in francophone west africa anglophone non nigeria southern africa and rest of world, so like Europe, Caribbean, Middle East.
0: Yeah, this reminds me a lot of, first of all, COVID, the pandemic. When that hit, I think a lot of businesses realized the way they were running. Things needed to change. A lot of people realized they need to save a lot more cash. Cash is king. If something like this were to happen again, people, I think, have backup plans now where maybe previously this wasn't a thing. Seeing what happened in Nigeria, do you do anything differently in the business now in case something like this were to happen? I know you spoke about diversification. Is there anything else you guys do? I think, yeah, well,
1: diversification is key. We always knew, and first of all, we always knew, it looks like a lot of companies before COVID, we always knew we needed to diversify. It's just hard when, you know, you're getting getting so successful. And that's similar to a lot of the crypto companies. They know that they shouldn't Mm -hmm. be focusing on just one thing and that this is a temporary bull run. But it's hard yeah. because the bull run is yeah. so attractive. Yeah, so yeah. I think one is just always diversify your revenue and your geography, especially when you're in a frontier market. If you're in the U.S. or you're in Korea, you know, a deep big market, it's you know maybe less important to diversify your geography. But for a frontier business like us, geography d- geographical diversification is essential. And then the you know revenue diversification is essential. And then I think also mm. just um, a strong risk matrix. And so when that happened, we already had a very strong risk controls. And we knew when the risk controls were being breached, like there was too much diversification and it wasn't happening. We It was easy for us to make that decision. It's not like we sat and we looked at each other for six months. We were very quickly like, if it hits this level, let's move, you know, like grab the, yeah. go, grab the yeah. go bag and we know what we're doing. So we, grab the go back. Yeah. I mean, even, <laughs> even if we hadn't pulled the trigger earlier, we had a plan for what to do when that mm. went down. So I think planning for, you know, planning for, for risk is so important. So you have the risk matrix, you know, when you yeah. exceed your risk, risk levels and you know what your scenarios are going to be. And we do a lot of planning and, you know, sometimes we don't use the plan because things are going well, but we, we've we always known that in the markets that we operate, we need to be able to move quickly.
0: Yeah. At Talon in the Cloud, our business, we're working with many fintechs that are in that zero to 50 people growth phase. And it's a really tricky one for many. What did this stage look like for, as a finance? Such an interesting
1: question because I remember so clearly when we first hit 50 and the 20, yeah. the 20 to 50 was a lot for yeah. us, you know? Yeah. At 20, you know, it's a lot of changes. Yeah. Yeah. At 20 people, we were too much in each other's business. We knew everybody's doctor's appointments Mm -hmm. and, you know, every time (laughs) how many tissues each kid was using on their cold, you know, it was a little bit intense. (laughs) By the time we got to 50, we had a little bit more space and we had some like little mini managers and things like that. But 50 to a hundred was the place where I stopped having hired every single employee and you know, mm. everybody didn't know my lunch order anymore. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's when you had to kind of develop a more strategic and formal culture and values and guidelines. Because it wasn't just, you know, Elizabeth Pasta or, you know, Charlene Pessa, who who yeah. is our co-founder. It had to be something bigger than us, the founders. And, you know, a lot of companies start out with like a bit of cult of personality in the beginning. And that motivates yeah. everybody and they get excited but how do you make that scale? And at that point, we had big offices on two sides of the continent and then up in the UK. So when you have a triangle of Nairobi, Lagos, London, the culture has to span all three and has to be similar. So one thing we did is we focused on mixing everybody up in off-sites. So even though it was expensive, we didn't go to the Maldives, but we brought everybody down to Nairobi and we made sure we did off sites where we did some real touchy feely stuff. And we also Love did it. some strategic planning and we met each other so that when we went remote and went back home, um, there were a lot of bonds. So how do you fuse those bonds across teams that don't all go right back up to the founders and the first early employees? And then that was essential for us.
0: Hmm. We're going through that. 20 to 50 stage yet out in our business. And I think that we're so used to being inspired by our CEO. He's so heavily involved, but as the business grows, as you said, you can't be involved. And everyone can't know your lunch order. How does that culture and value trickle down? How do you ensure that those that one you hire have those values, but also that the company culture isn't lost? And I'm sure in the beginning, there's a lot more micromanaging, but as you grow, that's just not possible.
1: Well. Yeah, and I, I'd say like I forgot one thing. I also we also started working with an executive coaching team. So mm. um right about when we hit fifty, Huge. we brought everybody to Madrid and we did an offsite there with not everybody in the company, but I'd say 30 out of 50 people. And we we gave some cool connections to this amazing coaching team we use called Beautiful Soul. So shout out to Beautiful Soul which is in Senegal, in Dakar. And it's a great team that works with growth companies and works with very large organizations. And basically, they came in and gave us a lot of tools on, on how to do exactly those things. And they worked with not just the senior management, but mid-management and junior managers as well. And they helped with communication across the lines, with um, agenda setting, with you know evaluations and 360 evaluations. So even at a very early stage, we started implementing tools, processes, and, you know, tradition, I guess you could say, across the company that helped us as we scale. I love that. Elizabeth, thank you so,
0: so much for being on the podcast. It was lovely having you on. Thanks so much, Stacy. Where's the best place for
1: listeners to reach you? You can find us on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Fantastic. Thanks again. All the best.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new, exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.